Well, good morning. It's a, a privilege of mine to be able to introduce uh, our guest speaker with us this morning, who will be sharing with us from God's Word. Uh, Tim Challies is a follower of Jesus Christ. He has become uh, a growing friend to the pastoral staff here at our church over the last couple of years. Uh, he serves as an elder at Grace Fellowship Church in Rexdale uh, and is the co-founder of Cruciform Press. Uh, he's also authored uh, five books, all of which are good reads. And uh, on top of that, maybe the thing that he's most known for is this little blog that he keeps, uh, chalies.com. He's, uh, he's been doing this for over 12 years, which is, I think, 4,500 consecutive days. Uh, I would like to promote that to you in that uh, this blog is just a really great uh, tool that uh, automatically comes to you every day in your email. You just uh, sign up for the mailing list, and uh, not only does, does Tim review a number of really good uh, resources uh, for us as Christians that are growing, uh, but provides great insight uh, to those uh, other areas and aspects of Christian life as well. So I would invite you to help uh, welcome Tim with us this morning. Well, thank you. It is a joy and a privilege to be here, and I just see on the pulpit here it says, please do not adjust stand. I did that the first thing when I came here today, so I'll apologize to Pastor James a little bit later on. It is a joy to be here and a joy simply to open up the Word of God with you. So please take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be reading that text together. And then I will be explaining, I hope, how that text matters within the scope of the Bible, how that text matters within the scope of our lives as Canadians here in the 21st century. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please stand and I'll read God's Word to you. This is what God's Word says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. We would be so lost and so alone without it. So we thank you for your word. And we pray that in these few minutes we have together this morning, that you would help us to come to a deeper understanding of who you are as you reveal yourself to us in this, your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for quite some time now, one of my real fascinations has been the parts of the Bible that command us how to live our day-to-day lives. So we focus a lot of attention, and rightly, on the big-picture commands of the Bible, like the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. A command like that, it tells us the what. It tells us what we as Christians are to do. We're to go and to preach the gospel, and to make disciples of people in every corner of the earth. But that doesn't tell us the how, right? It tells us the what. It doesn't describe how we actually go about doing that. So what does that look like in real life? You might think of a favorite catechism question that many Christian children are taught. What is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But what does that look like? What does that look like on a Monday afternoon? What does that look like when we go to the office tomorrow, when we go to the classroom tomorrow, when we're at home tomorrow? And if we go looking for answers, we find them all throughout the New Testament. And it always interests me that the New Testament writers don't seem that interested in telling us how to live an extraordinary life. They don't tell us how to live a, a radical life. They just tell us how to be ordinary. The biblical writers just tell us how to be normal, which I think is a great relief because it seems like as far as the Bible is concerned, being ordinary is plenty good enough. There's this whole lifetime of challenge in just being ordinary Christians. But what does that ordinary life look like? What is the ordinary Christian life? Well, I think this passage we read, at least the first 12 verses of this passage we read, I think it offers us some really, really compelling and important answers. A little background to this, what we call the book of 1 Thessalonians. Apparently, this church in Thessalonica had written a letter to Paul, the Apostle Paul. And now he is writing back to them, and he's answering some of their questions. They had specific questions. He is providing answers. And we can figure out what the questions were by looking at the answers, right? And those answers are very, very helpful to us even today. Thessalonica was a big city, a busy city. It was a city kind of like the GTA in its time and in its place. Thessalonica was a very, very immoral city. There was lots of sin there. There were many opportunities for the Christians there to witness sin all around them, to witness the effects of sin all around them. So even though we're going back in time about 2,000 years, a different time, a different place, a different part of the world, those people aren't that different from us. 
And this church had apparently written to Paul to ask something like this, how can we live lives that are pleasing to God? How can we live in such a way that we know that God is pleased with us, that we're living the kind of life that God wants us to live? Now, if we think about that as Christians, if we were to kind of pull the room and see what kind of things we might expect Paul to say, we might think that he would say something like, in order to carry out the Great Commission, the way to do that is really the best way to do that is to sell everything you own and move to the far side of the world. You've got to be a missionary, right? That, that's the kind of life that's pleasing to God. And especially in a church like Thessalonica, which we learned was a mature church. These were grown-up Christians there. So shouldn't they have been willing to do that? Shouldn't they have been selling it all and moving far away? Or depending on your Christian tradition, you might think that Paul would say, what you really need to do is get rid of all you own and, and go away. Just be a monk. Hide away in the wilderness. Get alone with God. That is the Christian life. That's the mature Christian life. And I think what we do as Christians today is we go looking for answers like that. And we go to the Christian bookstore. And there's this whole category of books now with these superlative kind of titles, books called Greater or Radical or books with crazy in the title, books like that. There's a whole genre of these books that exist to tell us how we ought to be living, and they want to shake us out of our lives, our middle-class lives, and get us going, get us doing hard things. And so we read those books, and they get us pumped up, and we're sure this is going to be the, this will change us forever. And a year later, we kind of look at our lives, we do a little audit of our lives, and we realize actually not a lot has changed. And a lot of Christians are living with this kind of low-grade guilt, thinking that we're kind of on the, the B squad. We're on the backup team here. There's people out there doing all the great work, but us, we're just not. We're, we're just kind of letting people down. We're kind of riding the bench. There's other people out there who are doing the real stuff. They're the ones who are really living lives that are pleasing to God. But Paul doesn't say anything like that at all. When this church writes to him and says, how do we live a life that's pleasing to God? How do we live in such a way that God is thrilled with us? Here's what he says. Be sexually pure, love one another, and live a quiet life. We can alliterate that. We can say be decent, be devoted, and be diligent. That'll serve as an outline for us as we just look through this text to see what does Paul tell us about living the ordinary Christian life, living as God calls us to live. It's a life of decency it's a life of devotion, and it's a life of diligence. The first thing Paul tells them is to be decent. Not decent as in good enough, but decent as in behaving in a proper way. Really, to be sexually pure, sexually moral. So here's the question. Do you want to live a life that's pleasing to God? As a Christian here in this time, in this place, do you want to live a life that's pleasing to God? Do you want to live out the Great Commission? Do you want to live in a way where you know that the Lord is pleased with the way you live? Here's the first thing. Pursue sexual purity. That can seem really out of place. Why is it there? Why is it so important that we do this? Well, it's because the way we understand and the way we express our sexuality, that tells us an awful lot about whether we're really obeying the Lord or whether we're just following along with the, with the world. This is true today. It was true in Paul's day. Now, I think we, we tend to look at the world with this idea that things keep getting worse and worse and worse. Like previous generations, they've never had to deal with the kind of things that we are dealing with today. 
They've never had a government bringing in a sex ed curriculum like the one that we've been hearing about in the news. And and to some degree, that's true. And yet there is this sense in that the more things change, the more they really stay the same. If you go back 2,000 years ago to Thessalonica, you would see a city where there was widespread sexual immorality. You just think that in that day, a man who was well-to-do, a man who was respectable, the kind of guy who might live in Georgetown, that man would have a wife, of course. He would get married, right? And the job of his wife was to provide him with a legitimate heir. That was really her role. But then he would also have concubines who would be involved in his life. And their job was to pamper him, to take care of his day-to-day needs, to make sure he was well taken care of. Then there would be the succession of mistresses or prostitutes. That was normal. That was good. That was accepted in that day. That was just the way people were living. But then you think that these kinds of people were now hearing the gospel. These kinds of people were being saved by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These kinds of people were coming to the elders of that church and saying, I'd like to be baptized. And they were having to address really difficult questions. Like, I'm, I'm a married man, but I've got concubines. They're dependent upon me, right? I take care of them too. If I'm getting baptized, do I need to cut them off? If so, what happens to them? Or maybe it was the concubines. They were coming to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to be baptized. They wanted to come into the membership of the church. And they were saying, I am completely dependent upon this married man. What do I do? How do I live now? I've got no, no one to take care of me. What do I do? And so Paul then had to address this as part of Christian living. He couldn't ignore it. He couldn't assume it. He had to deal with it head on. And so Paul gives them two commands. Look with me at verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's two things he says there, one negative thing and one positive thing. One thing they must stop doing, one thing they must not do, and then one thing they must do. First, he gives them that negative command. He says they need to abstain from sexual immorality. They need to avoid it. They need to run away from it. They need to flee from it. And he ties this directly to their sanctification you want to be holy, you need to avoid sexual immorality. This is an important part of any person's growth in holiness, is to abstain from what is evil, which means that giving in to sexual immorality will necessarily stunt your Christian growth. Often when people come to me, they say, I just feel like I'm not growing as a Christian. I don't have that sense that I'm maturing in the Christian faith. Well, there's a great question to ask right away. Are you pursuing sexual immorality? Are you allowing it into your life? You can't expect to grow as a Christian, to grow in sanctification while you're pouring evil into your life. After that negative command, he gives a positive one. He says, control your own body in holiness and honor. Abstain and control. It's worth pausing for just a sec here to to show something. Do you see how he models putting sin to death? Because not sinning is not enough, right? He doesn't just tell them, abstain from sexual immorality. No, he also tells them to do what is right, right? To delight to do what is right. So the way to put sin to death 
is not just to stop sinning, but to replace that sin with something righteous, with something holy. So Paul says, put away immorality and then delight to control yourself in holiness and honor. It's like when you take that sin out of your life, there's a void now. If you don't fill that void with something holy, something good, another sin will just come rushing in there. So as you run from sin, always run to holiness. And he says here that purity is expressed positively in self-control, that fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Christians learn to control their desires, even desires that might seem natural. Christians learn to control those things out of their love for God and their desire for conformity to Christ. Is there anything more countercultural for Christians to speak into culture today than this? There are some natural desires. They seem so natural to you, you need to control. They don't define you. That's not who you are. You need to abstain from those things. You need to show self-control, self-mastery over those desires. Really, that's a Christian life, right? It's this long life of mastery over evil desires, evil thoughts, even ones that seem so natural, and replacing them with ones that are better, with ones that are pure. So Paul gives those two commands. He says to abstain from sin and to control your own, bodiness and hol- your, your own body and holiness and honor. Then he follows with two very, very serious warnings. Look with me at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. There's two important warnings in that passage as he's talking about this area of, of decency, of purity. The first warning is if you commit this kind of sin, sexual sin, you are calling down a kind of discipline upon yourself, right? Because when you commit that kind of sexual sin, you are defrauding someone else of something. You're taking from them something that is not yours to take, and God is an avenger. That's what the text says. He is an avenger in all these things. God will bring justice. You can hide your sin from your wife or from your children, from your husband. They might not know, they might not see, but God knows and God sees, and He will eventually protect them from you. He will discipline you. He will chastise you. Eventually, your sin will come to light. Eventually, God will make sure that that sin comes out so that those people can be protected from you. Second warning is that to ignore these commands is to ignore God Himself. God who gives His Holy Spirit to you, Paul says. God gives the Holy Spirit to us so that we cannot sin. Right? Christians have this amazing ability, this newfound ability. We can choose to not sin. We can choose to do what is holy, what is right. When you choose to commit this kind of sin, you are sinning against the presence of the Holy Spirit who is there. He's living within you. He's telling you not to sin. He's equipping you not to sin, and still you are sinning. That is a serious, serious matter. When you commit sin as a Christian, it's only because you choose to sin. 
It's only because you choose not to take hold of what the Holy Spirit is offering you in that moment. There's always a way of escape. So if you sin, it's only ever because you've chosen to ignore what God is offering to you in that moment. And again, that's to ask God to discipline you, to ask God to chastise you. Before we move on, what does He not say? He does not say to be a good Christian. You need to be a monk. You need to take a vow of celibacy. You need to cloister yourself away. It's none of that. Be married. Enjoy life. Enjoy having children. Enjoy the sexual relationship, but be pure in it all. You know, I love how the Bible addresses sexuality always frankly, but never graphically, right? Always honestly, but always purely as well. And there's a great call for us to model that in the way we speak of it. Again, against a culture that's talking about it in crass and vile ways, we can just follow God's model here to talk frankly, but always with dignity, always with purity, as we discuss a subject that's so integral to living the Christian life that Paul would put it very first as he tells these people how to live in a way that honors God. So there's that first command. Here's how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Be decent. It's obviously a command they needed. Paul knew them. He loved them. And so he gave them that command right from God. It's a command we need. Because no matter who we are, no matter our stage of life, we're surrounded by sexuality. We're surrounded by bad messages about sexuality. So even if we're not particularly tempted to act out in that way, we still need to guard our minds against all the false messaging, all the blatant sexuality that just surrounds us and is pressing in on us. So Paul's told these Christians to be decent, to refuse to be sexually immoral. And I love what he does next. Now he contrasts lust and love. He says, don't be controlled by your lust. Instead, be driven, be motivated by love. So you can't just stop at being decent. You also need to be devoted to one another. So that's the second part then of a life that's pleasing to God. It's a life of devotion. Paul says, be devoted. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, as you read your New Testament, you know you come to some places where churches are warned about their lack of love. And those are good passages for us to read and to consider. Right, so you go to Revelation chapter 2, there's a warning there to the church in Ephesus, right? Jesus speaking through John there, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Right, so every local church then has a choice. You can love or you can die. Right, this church there in Ephesus, it had been marked by love. There was a time when those people had loved one another, when that church was known for its love. But over time, it had drifted. And now here is Jesus warning them, either you recover that love or I will withdraw my presence from among you. But this church in Thessalonica was not like that one in Ephesus, not at all. Here's a church that was excelling in love. And so Paul was able to say, I don't even really need to teach you about love. I've got some things to say about it, but I don't need to say this. You're doing so well. So what do you think your church would hear? If you were to get a letter from the Apostle Paul, a letter from Jesus, 
you think your church would hear, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you once had. Or do you think you would hear, I don't even really need to say anything to you about love. You're doing so well here. There's nothing I really need to say to you. And not just loving doctrine, right? I know in churches like my church, I think, is much like yours. We love doctrine, which is a good thing. We love the Bible, which is a good thing. We love good preaching, which is a good thing. But do we love one another? That's the kind of love that they're talking about here. That's the kind of love Jesus was talking about, the kind of love that Paul was talking about, love for one another. So let's think about it. We can draw out four quick observations here about love, about Christian love. The first thing Paul teaches about love is that when it comes to love, God is the ultimate teacher. Right? He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love. So love is taught by God. How? How does God teach us to love? Well, that's an easy one, by, by the cross, by the gospel, right? God teaches us love ultimately by example, because the cross is the best and the highest possible example of love. And so that's why Paul could say to them, you need to love all the more. Paul wasn't a nag here. He wasn't just going after them because he could. He wasn't like that husband who's just never satisfied. He's always hitting away, always pecking away at his wife. No, he's just saying when Christ is the model, when the, when the cross is the example of love, you've always got a long, long way to go. There's always room to keep growing in your love. So here's a question. Is your church centered upon the gospel? Is this body of believers obsessed with the cross? Because within a local church, the love for one another really depends upon your understanding of the gospel, really depends upon your understanding of the love of God displayed on the gospel. So we've got all the knowledge these people had. There's nothing they had that we don't, so there's no excuse. We need to be loving like those people loved. Second observation about love is that Christians love one another. The primary object of love here is one Christian loving another Christian. So Paul says, you have been taught by God to love one another. At our church, we're starting a series through the book of Acts, and it's so obvious as you read the early chapters there that Luke wanted us to understand that these churches, these Christians, were marked by love. Love was a sign of someone who had been transformed by God. That doesn't mean Christians don't love people outside the church, but that the primary reach of, of the love of a Christian is to other Christians. We love other believers first, because then people look at that love, and that love is attractive, and that love draws them. So how do you express love for the people in your local church, in your congregation? I think a major challenge I see in my church, and again, we're Torontonians or from at least the, the greater Toronto area, I think one of the major challenges I see is that we're busy. So it's really hard to love in ways that are inconvenient. And when is, it, when is it ever convenient to love another person? When do people ever need you at a time that's just great for you? Right? Love has a way of interfering with our plans, of calling us to do difficult things, calling us away from our routines. Another challenge I see is expressing love for people who are different from you. 
Right? It's easy to love yourself, right? We all love ourselves. That means it's easy to love people who are a lot like you. But as people become more and more different from you, whether by family situation or race or age or gender, whatever it is, it gets harder and harder to love them. Well, until your love makes you uncomfortable, you probably haven't really loved at all. And I think in every church, there's temptations to divide across really easy lines, maybe the way you educate, or maybe uh, along racial lines or something. We've seen churches that have been divided over really small matters. We need to learn to love people who are different from us. Because when we do that, we're making a statement. We're saying we believe some different things. We, we're from different backgrounds, but the gospel is binding us together. The gospel is building that bridge between us. So these are actually small things because we are bound together first by our shared love for Jesus Christ, by being in the same family with Christ as our head. Third observation about love is that love extends outward. It radiates outward. Love begins close and it moves out. So Paul says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So the city of Thessalonica was in a region called Macedonia. There are some other churches like Ephesus and Berea. They were in the same region there. What Paul's saying here is, I can gauge the love of the believers in your church by the way that together you're loving that other church. It's like the the sun on a hot day. You feel the, the heat of the sun on your face. It's been a while since we've felt this. But you feel the heat of the sun on your face in the summer, and you think, that sun is 93 million miles away. If I can feel it and it's this hot here, just imagine how hot it is there at the core, at the center of the sun. That's kind of what Paul is saying. He, he looks at love like that. He's saying, if I see these expressions of love in those churches all the way out there, you're sending, you're, you're loving them all the way out there, then I can only imagine how much love you have for one another because the love is radiating outward. So would people at other nearby churches say, they love us this much. Therefore, I know how much they love one another. If your love doesn't extend way beyond the walls of this church, it's probably not nearly as strong as you think. The fourth thing is that love is meant to grow. Final observation about love, just from these verses. Love is meant to grow. Love is a lifelong calling, and it's always meant to grow. So Paul said, you're doing great when it comes to love. Now do this more and more. Because he knows that where love isn't growing, it's declining. Right? Love is never static. You don't ever reach the end of love. You don't ever coast when it comes to love. That's because according to the Bible, love isn't a feeling. Like you can stop feeling love, but love is action. You don't ever stop doing love. Right? There never comes a time where you say, there's nothing else I can give to that person. There's no other way I can love that person. No, there's always ways you can show love, you can do love for another person. And as your love grows, it takes deeper, better, costlier actions. Do you love people in your church more than you did a year ago? And again, I don't just mean feelings. Feelings are great. But do you pray for them more? Are you there for them more? Are you allowing them to inconvenience you even more? So how are you doing? How are you 
really doing? Now, before we move on, again, let's ask what Paul does not say, right? What does Paul not say when he talks about the subject of love? He does not say to start a soup kitchen. He does not say, open up your home to strangers. He does not say, move into the inner city and deny yourself comforts. Those are good things, but his command is far simpler. He says, love, and especially love these people right here in your local church, and then love other Christians and let the love radiate outward. How do we live a life that's pleasing to God? Through devotion, by being devoted to other believers. To live lives that please God, these people need to be decent, pure. They need to be devoted. They need to love one another. He's one more thing left to say. He tells them to be diligent. Look at verse 11. He tells them to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Here's a Christian life, aspire to live quietly. It's a great little sentence. It, makes, it means something like literally, it's sort of like make it your ambition to have no ambition or work hard to be still. That kind of thing, it's kind of an oxymoron. It contradicts itself. He's telling them to be peaceful. Go about their ordinary work. Do your ordinary lives. The honorable way to live their lives is to just calm down. Be content to be unremarkable. Be content to live a life that's simple, that's calm, that's tranquil. That probably hurts a little bit, right? We've grown up here in 21st or 20th century Canada. We've been told we're special. We're all special, right? Nobody wants to be normal. Nobody wants to be unremarkable. Nobody wants to be unnoticed. We all want to stand out. We all want to be known for something, for doing something, being something. Paul says, be normal, be quiet, be still. And he says there's two ways this quiet life manifests itself, in minding your own business and in working hard. Minding your own business, he says, aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. I guess there's something of the busybody in each of us, right? There's something in us that wants to have an opinion about pretty well everything, and especially things we don't actually know anything about. And that's what these people were about. These people were getting involved in things that were not their concern. You can go to Second Thessalonians and see again, he's still writing them about this. So we raise our eyebrows over the way other people spend their money or the kind of car they drive or the size of the house they buy. We're, we're second-guessing ministries in the church. We've got nothing to do with that ministry, but we still know how it could be run better. That's what he's talking about here. He says, don't. Just leave well enough alone. It's only pride. It's only pride that convinces you to get involved in something that's not really your, your affair at all. Right? It's pride that tells you you've got something to say and even in matters you know nothing about. Paul tells them, live a quiet life. And part of that quiet life is just stay in your lane. Just ignore other people's affairs. Ignore those matters. Don't get involved. Don't meddle with others. And really, I mean, you love people best by not meddling. And their affairs, right? If you want to love people, you can't be meddlesome. You can't be judging them. You love without meddling by serving, by serving humbly rather than proudly. 
the gospel path, the, the humble path, is to serve others. So just be humble. Mind your own business. That's the kind of diligence that God calls you to. So mind your own business. The second part to living this quiet life is to work with your own hands. Could that be simpler? You're saying earn a living. Work hard. Take care of yourself. We're not totally sure why he puts this call to hard work here, but it might be because of where he goes next in this passage, right? He talks about the return of Jesus. So it could be that what happened there in Thessalonica was people had heard Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And they were saying, oh, well, then there's no point working, right? I'll just wait. If he's coming soon, I'll just sit around and wait till Jesus comes. Or maybe the context is what came before. People were loving so much. People were being so generous that people were coming, becoming believers and saying, this is great. I don't even have to work. These people keep giving me money. They keep providing for me. They keep caring for me. So maybe it's one of those two poles there. Paul wasn't writing to people who wanted to work but couldn't find work, right? He wasn't being rude to the unemployed here. He was writing to people who had skill and opportunity and things to do but just weren't doing it. People who had skill and opportunity but had no desire. And you think about it, who is writing these words? Work with your own hands, right? If anyone in all that world at that time had reason to consider labor beneath him, it was this man, Paul. Right? He was a great scholar. He was as well-trained as anyone in the world in that day. Great intellectual. I mean, you've read the book of Romans. You know, the guy had this giant brain. He, he was real intellectual. He was a pastor. He was a church planter. He was an apostle. He had the right to ask people to support him. Right? Paul had the right to stand before Christians and say, please give me money so I can carry out this great work I'm doing. What did he do? He was a tent maker. He went around working with his own hands and never considered this undignified. He never considered this beneath him. He wasn't saying you literally need to work with your hands like being a teacher is wrong. The command is just, no matter your vocation, work hard. Support yourself. So do you work? Do you work hard? That's your calling, whether you're a landscaper, whether you're a homemaker, even if you're retired. The call here is to not be idle, not to pass your days in idleness and doing nothing. Charles Spurgeon said, the most likely man to go to hell is the man who has nothing to do on earth. Idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. It's idleness he's warning against here. None of us ever have a reason to be idle. Paul says, do you want to be a Christian who honors God? Then be unremarkable. Don't feel you need to sell everything, to move to the far side of the world, to, to make a pledge before all the church that you'll do all these radical things. Maybe that's a call for some people. But that's not the general call on the Christian. The call to every Christian is to live quietly. Mind your own business. Work hard. Now, we might think that sounds mundane, like that sounds too ordinary, like I deserve better. Like if I do that, I'll still be riding the bench. But look at this. Verse 12, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. To live this kind of life he describes here, that's an expression of love. It benefits Christians and it benefits non-Christians. Right? He says, Christians, you'll be dependent on no one. 
You won't need to take advantage of the love and the generosity of other people. In fact, you'll have money so you can give love. You can express love and generosity to others. And then to non-Christians, you'll live properly before outsiders. Live properly before those who don't yet believe. Because no one in your workplace is impressed if you're the lazy one or if you're the meddlesome one. So work hard. Avoid interfering with others. And you'll be living as this witness to the grace of God. So be diligent. Diligence is this absolutely fundamental part to living the life that is honoring to God. Let's wrap up. God expects us to be ordinary Christians. And that looks like a love of decency, of devotion, and diligence. And you know, we see all of that modeled in the Apostle Paul. You look at his life, he is describing himself, he is living this kind of life, but you can also see it modeled in the life of Jesus, because he was decent. There was never any hint of sexual immorality around Jesus. He could be around women and they felt safe, they felt loved, no one accused him of immorality among women. He was devoted. No one's ever loved like Jesus loved, right? His whole life was love. He loved his friends. He loved strangers. He loved enemies. His death, his death was the ultimate expression of love. And he was diligent, right? Jesus was a carpenter. We, we think about the last few years of his life, and rightly so. But before then, he, he worked with his hands. The Son of God working with his hands. And then when he began that public ministry, he carried out the entire task his father had given him. He did it with joy, and he took it all the way to completion. He was never idle. He was never meddlesome. So he, right there, is our great example. Study the life of Christ, and you can make all these applications to your life. The fact is, this quiet, decent, devoted, diligent life, that's the life that makes the gospel look great. That's a life that's pleasing to our God. Amen, and let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you instruct us how to live. We thank you that you tell us how we can live lives that are pleasing to you, because as Christians, people saved by grace, that's our great desire, to live in a way that we know you are pleased with us living in a way that we're reflecting all glory, all honor to you. And so we pray that we would do that. We pray that you would help us to live lives of decency, of devotion, of diligence, that we can stand out, that we can be a shining light here in our communities, here in Canada, a nation that so badly needs Christians living as Christians. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be content to live this life that's pleasing to you, that you would receive all the honor and all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.